Golly, that was sure pretty, huh? Yeah. It's like the mist is what's pretty, you know? All gold and silver. Mm-hmm. Too bad it can't stay like that all the time. Nothing gold can stay. Huh? Nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaves a flower. But only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. So Eden sang to grief. So dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. Where'd you learn that? That's what I meant. Robert Frost wrote it. I always remembered it because I never quite knew what he meant by it. Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall, Season 2 Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, A.J. Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other host. All right. So, uh, as I mentioned, still going through Francis Coppola's filmography, and we're getting into the really interesting 80s. And the, the film we'll be talking about today is The Outsiders. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to talk about both versions. So don't worry if you're a fan of both or one or the other. We will d dive into both of them. Um, so first... What is the what wine do you have? It looks like you have a delicious red wine. Yeah, this is a delicious red. It's the Blue Label Merlot 2016. I'm certain we've had the Merlot. I don't know that we've had the 2016. I don't know where you'd even find this. And <laughs> let's see, our Merlot has fragrant notes of plums, currants, and anise. Yep. There's that word again, with lively flavors of blueberry pie. You know, I taste the blueberry now. But does it taste like blueberry pie? I, mm, I don't really what taste does that the mean? crust. <laughs> you right. taste some Crisco, you taste some crust. Like, why not just say blueberry? What is the difference between, a, maybe it's a sweeter blueberry, like would, in a pie where you put, mix it with sugar? Maybe that's what they mean. Let's see, cherries and toasted oak. And yep, it's the one to drink with beef tenderloin, grilled lamb chops, or aged cheeses. Um, I mean, once again, it's good wine. Still haven't learned to discuss it any more than that. <laughs> and we never will. <laughs> no, this is not. Hey, we didn't not work at a wine in. store for 10 years. We worked at a video store for 10 years. It's, you know, we can only pick one thing that we're smart about, and that was movies. So. I bet there's a really good wine podcast and they very poorly talk about Coppola movies for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm drinking one we definitely have, but it is a different vintage. I'm doing, again, the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Chardonnay, but this is a 2017. I believe the one we did before was a 2018. And uh, so this one says it has flavors of pears, tropical fruit, and citrus. And it does goes well with the shellfish, poultry, and appetizers. I like I like it just as appetizers, like pizza rolls, 
I guess it works. Well. Mozzarella <laughs> like, sticks. Mozzarella sticks. Uh, cheese plates. Uh, you know, deviled eggs. Just anything that you eat before dinner, this will be good with. It doesn't even say what ethnic food it could be. It could just be like, you know, egg rolls. <laughs> You know, gumbo, hummus, yeah, hummus, <laughs> just appetizers. Just, just have it with appetizers. It'll pair well, no matter what it is. Uh, <laughs> if you pair that with mozzarella sticks at a restaurant, <laughs> it'll probably be the only time where the appetizer is more expensive than the glass <laughs> of wine, because there's no such thing as affordable restaurant mozzarella sticks. <laughs> you know who has good cheap ones is Sonic. There's the, there's the only affo- those are the affordable mozzarella sticks. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad Dog Time, the Paperboy, Mordecai, after last season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films the world is wrong about available on paperhouse network wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> anyways let's talk about the outsiders and i'm very i'm very excited to talk about this have you have you seen this before i have wait yes i saw the theatrical version a few years ago when i was watching every tom cruise movie Mm. Uh, just because, you know, it's what you do sometimes. Yeah. And I had never seen it before that. I have never read the book. So I just didn't have to in high school. For whatever reason, I was in the English class that read something else that I don't (laughs) remember. But I remember everyone else reading The Outsiders and talking about it at lunch every day, going over like plot updates. And I was just (laughs) out of the loop. I never got it either. Like everyone I know was like, oh, the outsiders, yeah, I had to read that. And I was like, well, I never did. I wonder why, why, like we were reading all the other books that people were supposed to read in high school, but for whatever reason, this book did not come my way. And it's, it's interesting that it was the same thing with you. I wonder why, wonder why that is. But I guess it's my job, my task to do the plot description before we dive into it. I'm going to make it real simple. It's going to be a real simple one, okay? So here we are in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it's the early 60s? 63? Is that the year it's supposed to be? It's never explicitly never stated. Said. In... in my mind, it's like 62, 63. Well, they're watching Beach Blanket Bingo on uh, at the drive-in. So what year what year did Beach Blanket Bingo, Bingo come out? Here I'm going to pretend that I know by typing it into my DB in front of me. Oh, well that's 1965. The that seems late. That seems later than when this movie takes place. The book was written in 1967. It really feels like it takes place way before when it is set. Yeah, yeah, it still feels like it takes place in the 50s or like 62 yeah. max. You know? It definitely feels like pre-Beatles, pre-hippie, because these are like grease, like the way that people, like the, the rebels being greasers, that feels so 50s. It feels so like rebel without a cause or like, you know, rockabilly Elvis or, you know, asphalt jungle or whatever. Like it doesn't, doesn't feel as 60s as like 50s. So nebulous time, you know, 
a time of innocence, a time before Vietnam, <laughs> but after World War II. <laughs> we'll just put it somewhere in there. But they're watching Beach Blanket Bingo, but also really into Gone with the Wind. So, you know, you make up your own mind as the, the exact year of this. Anyways, uh, basically you have the story centered around an ensemble of people. Uh, you have three brothers. You have uh, Soda Pop, played by Rob Lowe. You have... Um, Daryl, played by Patrick Swayze, and then the the lead that you kind of the movies kind of goes through is Pony Boy, played by C. Thomas Howell. They don't have any parents; their parents passed away in a horrible train accident, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Where the car was just on the train track, and they couldn't get out in time, I guess, and the train just destroyed them uh, and killed them. <laughs> I uh, I took that to be because we see that in a dream sequence yeah. i took that to be just like that's symbolic it, so they're dead they're gone and uh so but he but pony boy has some really good friends he hangs out with so he hangs out with johnny played by ralph macchio and he also uh hangs out with dallas played by matt Dillon. and dallas is sort of like the real like the coolest kid in town sort of like tough guy he clearly seems like he's from the east coast but maybe that's just because it's matt Dillon playing it and so he's sort of like this badass greaser guy uh they all have switchblades they're all from the wrong side of the tracks these are definitely low-income kids and in their group of friends there's also steve played by tom cruise and two-bit played by emilio estevez and a bunch of other guys a bunch of greasy guys but then there's the rich kids also known as the socias and the so is that right? Socias? I mean, yeah, right? socias, yeah. like short socias. for social or socialite. And these are like the preppy kids. These are the rich kids. They wear high water pants that Emilio Estevez makes fun of in one scene. Uh, they drive the really nice cars at the drive-in. They get to sit in the car while the greasers have to sit in folding chairs because they're not rich enough to have a car. Uh, and the the, the socias, like the main guy, is uh, Bob, played by Leaf Garrett, and he is drunk the entire time his character is on screen he's got a little <laughs> flask i in real life he was probably drunk the entire time the movie was made uh on the commentary diane lane alludes to him being really into method acting while making this movie uh, uh for his two scenes <laughs> for his two scenes and so and then and then there's cherry the beautiful cherry valance played by the beautiful diane lane and she's sort of the girl that all these guys have a crush on. And even though she's a soch, the greasers are really into her. And she has a fight um, with Leif Garrett's character. And she goes and sits with the greaser guys in the folding chairs. She does not get along with Dallas. She's not getting along with the Matt Dillon character. He is trying to hit on her in a more, not even hit on her. He's just being gross and sexual. Just that he's teasing her basically. And just being kind of a creep to, for laughs. And, but she seems to be okay with Ralph Macchio and C. Thomas Howell with Pony Boy because they are more polite and nice. But she can never, she even says to him, to Pony Boy, well, I'll never say hi to you in school though, because like, you know how it is. Like you're, you're the poor kid, I'm the rich kid. This is just how it is. We have our cliques, our class divide. This is just how it is. So then that night, a little brawl uh, takes place between the socials and the greasers. And it ends with uh, Leaf Garrett being stabbed by little Ralph Macchio, who has a switchblade. And so the two kids freak out, go to Dallas and say, hey, man, 
uh, what, we killed this guy. What do we do? And he's like, you leave town, you go to the old church, like in the next town, whatever, and just wait there and wait it out. So they do that. And it kind of turns into a little mini, like, you know, mini movie kind of feels like a Hardy Boys thing or something. They're hopping a train, they're walking through the woods, they end up at a church. And then they just kind of live in this church for this abandoned church for like, but feels like a week or you can't, can't really tell for what seems like a few weeks. Well, long enough to read most of Gone with the Wind. So maybe a few weeks and they eat, they live off of bologna sandwiches and just read gum in the wind and they decide to cut each other's hair and, and pony boy gets his hair bleached so they can really be incognito. But then they, uh, Dallas shows up to uh, see how they're doing to tell them that things seem to be okay for them to maybe come back to town. They go get a hamburger at a dairy queen. They come back. The church is on fire. And they, there's these little kids stuck in the church. There's a school bus of kids there. Why is there a school bus of kids there? I do not know. Why are they in the church? I don't know. Because there's clearly like adults there supposedly supervising them. But for some reason, like five of them are inside this burning abandoned church. They it's, never make clear why that is. It seems like it would be like a field trip like a church field trip, but you, you normally go to like a functional church. Like when they go to this church, it's, it's abandoned. There's cobwebs. Put it up. Wood. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know why you'd be like, Oh kids, let's all go out and play in this field in front of this old church. But I don't understand. I don't get, I don't get that part. Uh, but anyway, so then the greasers are like, we got to go save these kids. So they all bust, the three of them bust in, pull the kids out. But at the last minute, little poor Ralph Macchio, uh, Johnny, doesn't quite make it out, and the whole church collapses on him. But he does not die. He just is horribly burned, and is all the bones in his body are broken. So he's immobile, and he's in the hospital for the rest of the movie. While that's going on, you have, uh, you know, the pony boy and his brothers were concerned that, like, all these things have happened, and they're... And he's kind of doesn't quite get along. He gets along, Pony Poe gets along with Soda Pop well. Soda Pop is sort of like this really nice brother. And then uh, Daryl is more stern. He's taken on the role of like the parent. So he's more the, where have you been? Why are you doing? And he even uh, shoves uh, Pony Boy down. And Pony Boy does not enjoy being like kind of, not beaten up, but he doesn't like that little bit of violence. But anyways, they come back to town. They're hailed as, as heroes for saving these children, saving these kids. Um, and basically they, there's some hanging out and then there's going to be this big rumble, this big fight between the greasers and the socias in this big field. And so there's this big epic fight with all these kids where they're really, it looks like they're really punching each other a lot. And then, um, they go back to the hospital to tell little Ralph Macchio how great their brawl went, how they won. And he's like, who cares? And he dies. <laughs> and then Matt Dillon is really upset that he's dead. Dallas is not happy. He's like, what a waste. Why did you save those people? If you're just going to die, this is dumb. So then Matt Dillon, uh, Dallas, goes to just rob, try to rob a convenience store. Uh, the guy who works at a convenience store is a nerd, but he's a nerd played by William Smith. So he's like this ripped nerd who looks like Clark Kent. And it doesn't make any sense that it's William Smith other than he was around and also in Rumblefish. And they said, hey, come and play this nerd for this one. So he's playing against type 
William Smith, this great actor who was in many like biker movies and he uh, was in Maniac Cop and he's a great, he, he looks like a tough ripped guy, but in this movie he plays like a weak uh, store clerk. <laughs> Dallas robs the place, gets, runs away, but gets shot. Uh, then the cops come and the cops kill him. And uh, the, the guys are all, the greases are all sad. And then you see Pony Boy. Oh, and the movie's bookended by Pony Boy kind of writing his journal or writing the story of that summer. And then, you know, the movie touches on the, the, the nice lines from the book of Stay Golden, you know, Stay Gold Pony Boy from little Johnny when he's dying. Uh, and then at the end, in the copy of Gone with the Wind, is it Gone with the Wind? Did he find yeah. a little note? He finds a little note from Johnny just being like, you know, stay gold and just stay young and like this life is great and like, you know, tell Dallas he's great and and then it, the movie's over. <laughs> <laughs> Did I leave any important stuff out? I never read the book, so I'm sure people listening is like, you left out my favorite scene. I don't care. But... Uh, <laughs> But that's, he got the basics. We'll break it down. Yeah, yeah we'll basically the down. movie is kids on the wrong side of the tracks, rich kids, they're not getting along with each other. You know, this, this big class divide and then these brothers who help each other through it. The end. That's the movie. And, and we're not going to get into the uh, director's cut yet. Let's just talk about this, the movie as is, as it was originally released. Um, yeah. So the interesting production history behind this not as interesting as the production history behind coppola's other movies he had a few months between like declaring bankruptcy because of one from the heart and the creditors coming in for foreclosure and so he decides i gotta shoot like i'm gonna shoot a movie shooting movies got me into this mess shooting movies will get me out (laughs) Uh, and he had and it wasn't exactly right at this moment, but he had received a letter from a teacher or a librarian in Fresno that had read this book, loved it, and recommended it to kids to try and get them to read. And then uh, the students of this particular high school and the librarian all wrote a letter to Francis Ford Coppola around the time of The Godfather, maybe after, like asking him if he would make it into a movie. But I think they also wrote it to other Hollywood types to get it made. And then now that Coppola doesn't have anything else lined up, like, hey, here's this book. He read it, it's short. It seems like it will be cheap to make. It's about (laughs) teenagers so I can cast young people. I don't have to pay a lot. Let's do it. (laughs) And so he goes to Oklahoma. They shot in Tulsa. Then financing came in like right before they were scheduled to start shooting. And we'll, we'll save all the tidbits about Rumblefish for our next episode because there'll be enough to talk about just that. But it's just good to know going into this that, yeah, he basically while he was filming The Outsiders on the weekends was right working on the script with Essie Hinton, the author, on a script for Rumblefish. And then was basically like went right into production immediately once Outsiders stopped, wrapped filming. They started filming the next one. Uh, yeah, in the same town with a lot of the same actors. Diane Lane's in it, Matt Dillon's in it, William Smith that we just talked about. So that'll be interesting to watch that for the next episode. But so yeah, this movie's based on the very popular book by S.E. Hinton, which, who I didn't know was a lady until I watched this movie again this week. I always assumed it was a guy. 
because I guess I'm sexist and I assumed, oh, just a guy wrote this thing about, because it's a book about a bunch of guys. And with the, and I should have known when the name was just initials that that maybe was a, I was intentionally led to believe it was a man because when the book came out, I guess she was told by, with a publisher, if you, if it looks like it's written by a woman, people won't be as interested in it. But if you think, if it's like vague or if it seems like leaning towards a guy, more people will buy this book. And sad, sadly, that is true. And that's what happened. It's luckily, that's not a thing that seems to happen anymore. I think people are totally fine buying a book written by a woman in 2020. No, but, now you have male authors changing, <laughs> like taking on androgynous pseudonyms or like unisex pseudonyms yeah. to make people think like, ooh, it's a mystery written by a woman. But then when you're reading, when I'm reading this one book, <laughs> The Last Time I Lied by Riley Sager, you know, there's a lot in here, like this woman is apologizing to a man who didn't believe her when she was telling the truth. And now she's apologizing to him. Something seems off about this. <laughs> What's up with this author? There's no pronouns used at all. And not even in like a whole, like, like a non-binary kind of way. Look it up. Oh yeah, that author is a dude. <laughs> no one wants to read a mystery written by a dude. Yeah, yeah tricked. And it's interesting, like I've been working on this Emmanuel project and that book, it is, it is speculated that it's not written by a woman named Emmanuel, but her husband. But there's no real evidence either way. And when you read the book, you're like, yeah, I guess that could be written by a guy. But at the same time, like, I don't know. So S.E. Hinton, based on her book, very popular book with young people, like incredibly popular, still one of the best-selling books for like people under 20 or whatever. So when it was announced that Coppola was going to make this movie, it was a big deal. And basically every actor under 35 went into audition for it. It was sort of like, if you were a cool guy, you had to figure out how to be in Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of The Outsiders. And the uh, Fred Ruse, who was a producer on many of Coppola's movies, starting with Godfather 2 and all the way through Godfather 3, he was the casting director for American Graffiti. So he clearly has an eye for young talent before they're really famous, because that movie is all famous. You know, all those people went on to great careers, especially Charles Martin Smith. And uh, then he, producing this movie, helped with casting and would be like, we should check out this Patrick Swayze guy. We should check, like he was sort of like, everyone credits him as being the person who pulled together this amazing cast. Um, and it really is sort of like, like American Graffiti uh, 10 years before this, it is sort of a who's who of everybody who became really famous in the 80s and beyond. It's the cast is crazy for this movie. It is crazy. And you can also see why all of these guys and Diane Lane as well, the, the, it's a powerhouse cast and it is like 99% male. Mm -hmm. you know, it's about a bunch of dudes. And also Diane Lane is there. <laughs> but uh, with all of the cast, you can see why they went, why they went on to have success in the 80s and, and beyond for some of them. But just like in the little roles, like Tom Cruise is in this movie barely in the theatrical cut. And he's in it only slightly more in the extended complete novel. But man, he's just got this real presence. Emilio mm -hmm. Estevez steals every scene that he's in. And again, he's in it like for only like, uh, like one long scene and then a couple short scenes. 
Patrick Swayze just has like that movie star aura. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we're, we're going to spend time with him now? I'm excited about that. Rob Lowe is barely in the theatrical cut also, but he's just got this like, just this charm about him. Same with like, it's same with everybody. Ralph Macchio and Ralph Macchio is great. Ralph Macchio, that's perfect casting, casting him as Johnny. Like he's so like, like he seems like he really is caught up in the wrong crowd. Like he's this meek, like tender hearted guy who's from an abusive home and just because of circumstances beyond his control is in this bad, tough situation that he's just not cut out for and then finally reaches a breaking point. And Ralph Macchio just plays that like so, so perfectly. Yeah. And supposedly he was like uh, the most like focused actor on the set. That, that to the point where like some of the other actors were upset with him because like C. Thomas Howell, like these are guys who were like teenagers. So like when, they're, when the, the day rep, they wanted to like play and be silly and like do pranks. They all stayed in this one hotel and played a lot of pranks or played video games. And Ralph Macchio was the one who was like, no, I need to practice, go over my lines. I need to, I need to be focused and ready and prepared for tomorrow. So he kind of shut himself off from the rest of the people to make sure he did a really good job. <laughs> Is a lot of like he's great. So C. Thomas Howell is the main character. He's the narrator, and I feel like a lot of the emotion, like what's at stake, comes from Johnny, from Ralph Macchio's character. Even though C. Thomas Howell is the main character, and the the danger is with uh, Matt Dillon as Dallas, who's the actual like like the actual criminal of the group. All these other guys are just like guys from the poor side of town that occasionally like get in fights and stuff but he's the one that like is he just got out of prison he got out of jail at the beginning of the movie yeah Machio puts the emotion into the movie and he has the moments of like looking out at the sunset and the mist and wondering like why does it all have to you know why can't it stay like this forever and then he has the uh the closing monologue, the letter, the letter to Pony Boy, where he realizes what the the poem "Nothing Gold Can Stay" means, and it can all sound really like, really corny, you know, really, and it's really out there. There's no like subtext to what he's saying. He's saying like the lesson of yeah. the movie. <laughs> yeah, the moral of the story is this, but you believe it like I, I i believe him and the emotion and yeah. coming from him you believe it and it's not corny even though yeah. even though it really really could be delivered the wrong way from another actor mm-hmm. i mean it's amazing to like not every child actor or teen actor is good and the fact that they have a movie full of you know 20 of them and they're all good and like you said like emilio estevez even though he's hardly in it He's great in those little bits, or Tom Cruise is great in those bits. Like everybody, like even like Leif Garrett, who's like hardly in it and hardly says anything, he's believably shitty and you don't like him. <laughs> and everyone's really good. And I guess the, uh, if you watch the, the DVD, the, uh, on the complete novel DVD, I don't know if it's on the regular, but there's a making of where they go through, talk about how the rehearsal process went in the tryouts, basically. 
And so instead of having all the actors read one at a time in a room, like you often do in an audition, he had them all in the room together. So he would just be like, okay, all 20, 30 of you guys in this room. And Coppola was one of the first people to kind of videotape rehearsals and auditions. Uh, and this was he, part of his electro, electronic cinema. Yeah. And so he would tape it. And what's great on the DVD is you can actually watch this footage. I think it's on YouTube too. You can watch the footage they shot where they went through the movie, the script, over and over again. And Coppola would change the actors around being like, okay, today you're doing Pony Boy and you're doing Dallas. Okay, now the next day you're doing Dallas and you're doing Pony Boy. And he would just like try all the actors out in all different roles to kind of see what worked. And he was kind of slowly whittling down like the people he thought was really perfect for it and what role, which is really interesting. It feels very Coppola, that sort of like experimentation that he's always up to, even though he's making a movie that's fairly, in a way, more traditional than his last many movies we've watched. Like this definitely is the more, feels more classic Hollywood than anything he's made since maybe the first Godfather, like parts of the first Godfather, where this movie has this sort of classic Hollywood look and the way it's made. And it, in a way, gives it this timeless feel because it doesn't feel like it's made in the early 80s. And it doesn't feel like a throwback to old times like we talked about with Hammett or even one from the heart. Like this feels just like a movie taken from 1961. Like this could be some Nicholas Ray movie or something that's dropped in our laps that we didn't know about. It's really classy the way it's made. But anyways, so these auditions were a big deal, uh, the way he filmed it and the actors got really into it. And some of the people who didn't make the cut, but who were really good, I guess Dennis Quaid uh, was offered the role of Dallas or tried out for it. Val Kilmer was gonna be Pony Boy. That would have been an interesting movie, but he had to drop out because he was in a play. Um, Scott Bayo was going to be in it. In my mind, he was going to be Johnny. Maybe uh, Scott Bayo. Like I can kind of, yeah. I don't know. He's got like a macho esque. Maybe because he's just an, you know, Italian American. Uh, and of course, uh, Mickey Rourke, who Coppola loved, but didn't know what, didn't think he was right for any of the parts in in this movie, and that's sort of what helped helped kickstart him wanting to do Rumblefish so he can work with Mickey Rourke. Um, but uh, yeah, so like that's an interesting way to, to kind of put this movie together, but a good way to get the kids to really know the material well. Like if you know all your lines and everybody else's lines, like you're going to get some good performances. There. <laughs> be yeah, really it, it, is, it is filled with, with good performances. And in this theatrical version, which is short, it's an hour and a half, like I think maybe 91 minutes, you know, uh, officially. But when these characters come on screen, they know like they are fully in it. Like we are, like we are just dropped in to uh, a day in the life of these characters and they don't take time establishing who they are. They just are who they are. And we pick up as they yeah. go through their day. I really love the beginning of this movie, the, uh, you know, following the, uh, the opening narration where he starts to write down the story of the outsiders in his notebook. And then it cuts to uh, uh, like Matt Dillon waiting on the street and uh, Gloria is playing pony boy and Johnny come up and they, you just follow them as they go through the town on their day. It's this really great efficient way of just setting up. Here's who the characters are and here's their world. 
and we're just going to follow them. We're not going to take time to walk you, baby step you through it. Yeah. We're just going to follow them. Here they are. They're walking. They come upon a group of like little kids playing cards. And Matt Dillon like makes them give him the cards and then says, hey, have you ever played 52 pickup? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, hey, like, don't be smart with me. Like, I don't like little kids. Like, get out of here. And then they chase the kids. And it it sets up right away that he is, like, the, the tough guy, the one capable of, like, being mean. But also he's picking on, like, little little kids, and he just chases them away. You know, like, he didn't, like, beat them up. He didn't, uh, uh, like, hey, let's go beat up someone our own size or someone smaller. He just chased off some kids and like, hey, let's go to a movie. And so then they go to the movie and then we meet more people and we just really get thrown into their lives. And I really like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, and Matt Dillon is amazing in this movie. He is so good. Uh, he had the year before, I think it was the year before, was in the movie Tex with Emilio Estevez, also based on the Essie Hinton book. And then he's in this, and then he's going to be in Rumblefish. So clearly there's something about the world, the tough boy world of S.E. Hinton and Matt Dillon that works together so well. And he is, he has that like Brando-esque sort of quality in this. Like he has that like tough, handsome guy, you know, that confidence. And he's, and he's yeah, this like he's, you can tell watching this movie that he is born to be a star. Like he is going to be an actor for all time. And he still is. He still is a great actor. And I and I love everyone in this movie, but he is by far my favorite person in this movie. It's my favorite character, and I think he's the best actor in this movie as well. Like, he's so good. He's so, like, th- like this movie just feels so lived in. Like, everybody is so, even though they're all these huge stars, you believe in the world that they exist in in this movie. I, I really did. I read um, or some some reviews of this. It did not get generally good reviews from anyone ebert gave it two and a half stars out of four but his review is like are you sure this isn't a one star review (laughs) he was not kind to it he mentions how like you don't get to know any of these characters uh you know they don't come off as real people because you don't spend any time with them which i totally disagree with me too i totally disagree with that uh and there are like without explaining to you that there are different layers to the characters you you just see the different layers in the scene where dallas goes to pick up johnny and pony boy from hiding out the church and they uh, johnny wants to turn himself in and they go to get some food they go to a dairy queen and i saw dairy queen i'm like hey it's dairy <laughs> queen that's a real place that you only go to when you have to when you're traveling and they were traveling, so that to me is extremely real. <laughs> and that seems great because as a cameo, the first credited performance to Sofia Coppola, here credited as Domino, that was her acting name when she was 12, and she, it's clearly her. She walks up to them eating hamburgers and asks them for change, basically. Who knows why, but she's just like there with her little brother being like, hey, do you have a dime? Hey, can you give me some money? <laughs> And they tell like, her, hey, beat it, beat it, kid. <laughs> yeah, Matt Dillon's like, hey, like, get out of here, kids. Like, are you sure you don't have 10 cents, mister? He's like, hey, get out of here, kid. <laughs> and then she leaves. He was trying to show Johnny and Pony Boy his, the gun that he has, yeah. the heater. 
that he has. And once she's gone, he says, oh, like, that was close. <laughs> like, oh, no, like, you almost got found out by a 12-year-old girl. Like, one, like, so, you know, like, he was fronting. Like, he was putting on a show, like. Yeah. You know, so he is, he's playing up that he's the the older, wizened, you know, criminal of the group. Yeah. Uh, I did. My wife and I did joke that when Matt Dillon said, like, oh, that was close, she almost got into the movie. (laughs) (laughs) We chased her away. Good. It's going to be the first of many roles we're going to see her building to the crescendo that is uh, Godfather 3 in a few episodes. Um, (laughs) Did you see there's also Essie Hinton has a cameo. She's a nurse. That Matt Dillon is like, you make me sit, get out of my face. Yeah, that's the author of the book. I love that. That really feels like one of those moments where it's like, hey, we don't have anything written right now, uh, <laughs> but just make something up so we can start the scene. <laughs> it's very good. That's and good. and I, so I guess Tom Cruise um, was Tom Cruise when he made this. So he was like incredibly method and into it, and alienated the other actors. More so than Ralph Macchio. And Ralph Macchio didn't really alienate people. He was just like too ser- like really serious about it and was kind of like not trying to be a kid. Whereas Tom Cruise was like super, like the way he is still, like the way he like gets so involved and so focused on getting everything perfect and then some that it, everyone else thought it was a little odd. And I guess he surgically got his tooth removed for the scene in the brawl at the end. He got his tooth pulled out just so he can look like he got punched in the face. Ah. Like, they gave him then another tooth, but like for a, for a role, he's only on screen for what seems like five minutes. But you know that's commitment. That's that's Tom Cruise for you in a nutshell. Like he will get a tooth pulled out for five minutes of screen time, they just like he'll was, jump out of an airplane or climb a building. Or he, he'll the Tom Cruise is will die for your movie. He will do whatever it takes to make it good. The movie he did right before this, it was his second movie. His first movie was Endless Love, where he has a small role in it as the guy that gives the main character the idea to set his girlfriend's house on fire and then show up and rescue everyone. And then his parent, her parents will like him again, but it goes wrong. And he basically just slowly kills her family over the course of the movie. Great movie. Great great love story. (laughs) Tom Cruise's second movie is taps where he plays the crazy guy. The guy who's like shooting the machine gun out and he's like, it's so beautiful, man. (laughs) <laughs> and then coming right off of that going into the outsiders the next year i can see him still having that intensity and then soon after this is risky business and then you know the rest is history then yeah. it's just the top the tom cruise the big biggest star in the world tom cruise so but he's good in his weird little parts patrick swayze is great and there's a, an amazing swayze part where they're going to this only pet. I'm sure this was just an improv on his behalf. They're running to go to this brawl. He decides to do this crazy like pole vault over the fence, like handstand. Like he like he flips over the fence, does like a like walks on his hands and thing, and flips down like perfectly beautiful, like just a beautiful animal in the wild, just like flowing. Like he is also, like so Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise backflips off of a car. Yeah. Like, and you can tell when he does the flip that Patrick Swayze is spotting him. Like Patrick Swayze standing there, making sure that Tom, like you can tell that he probably would taught Tom Cruise how to do the flip. That he was like, "Hey, I'm a trained dancer, kid. Let me show you 
like how to do these gymnastics, how to do these flips without hurting yourself. Because he's clearly there spotting him. Like he's kind of has his hand up and then he moves away and he's, he's the one watching to make sure Tom Cruise lands well. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, it's a great kind of absurd moment when they're getting ready to go to the Rumble and doing these awesome and totally random acrobatics, which totally set up the wrong expectations for what the Rumble is going to be, which is just like dirty fighting in the rain and mud throwing punches and no one uses acrobatics like it seems like they're going to get into a fight with the jets and the sharks (laughs) yeah (laughs) and this movie has those like moments of reality but then it gets into this weird kind of like movie it's like it's an interesting blend of like real emotion between people but then these obvious sort of movie moments like the big scene where Pony Boy and Johnny are like watching the sunrise and they're talking about they're talking about the Robert Frost poem. It looks like an old movie. Like it's clearly like a rear projected thing, definitely playing into it looking kind of like Gone with the Wind, because that's the book that they're obsessed with and reading. Like that scene has to have been an homage to Gone with the Wind for sure. Um because it looks like a scene from Gone with the Wind. And and like you have all these uh split diopter shots uh, where you have two things in focus in the foreground and the background, like Brian De Palma did it a lot in Dress to Kill. And so you have every, it's, I don't know how it lo- works. I think it's like a use two lenses it, or something. It's one lens split down the middle. So you can have two different focal lengths in the same shot. Uh, yeah, Brian De Palma uses it to great effect. It's used to great effect here. And it's really like stylistic, like, you know, something's, something odd is going on here after the fight the first fight where johnny kills uh leaf garrett and then pony boy wakes up from you know being nearly drowned and you see ralph macchio's face he's on like the left side of screen and leaf garrett's body is in the background there you know the fountain is far away but it's like right there up by his head but the body is still like small because it's in yeah the background uh it looks odd but it looks really cool too yeah it is very cool and then there's this scene uh when uh pony boy's running out of his house and you see through the house into the outside like it looks like they cut off the side of the house just so they can move and have this shot where you're inside and outside with one without any cuts that that's that, that stuff feels very like Coppola, like post one from the heart Coppola. That's sort of like, it reminds me of in one from the heart when you had the, with, with the scene when Frederick Forrest is hanging out with uh, Harry Dean Stanton and it's going from their apartment to where Terry Gar is and it's all one shot kind of going through walls and windows and things. Mm-hmm. Like that's some good like showy, showy Coppola. There's not a lot of showy Coppola. I feel like this movie more, like I said, more so than any of the things before this for a while, feels very much like him almost not necessarily playing it safe, but trying to make a more traditional movie. In an interview he did around the time Outsiders and Rumblefish were made, it's weird. In that interview, he you could tell he was really psyched about Rumblefish and the Outsiders was like, ah, just this thing I did. And he felt, he seemed like Rumblefish was, he could do like crazy stuff with, like, a, you know, auteur artistic stuff with. But Outsider, since he was making this beloved book yeah. into 
a movie, he felt like he had to really follow the book. He couldn't uh, like put himself, his personal touch <clears throat> in there. Yeah. But and he was also hoping it would make a lot of money. Like if it was a movie that was straightforward, that would mean more regular, normal people would see it. And then he can pay back his debt quick, more quicker, quickly. <laughs> but I do feel that there is still, there's enough artistic flair that makes it really interesting in the biography by Michael Shoemaker, where Coppola is leading up to the outsiders. He's, seems excited about the outsiders and he's talking about he's going to make an art film for kids he's going to make gone with the wind for kids even though it's just about like teenagers it's going to have this big sweeping feel and it's going to feel like gone with the wind but for teenagers to me this isn't just a a plain like director for hire yeah job because yeah he is following the book and it is like really almost exactly almost exactly the book everything as it happens he didn't change a whole lot so yeah he didn't put himself into the script but i think he really put himself into the filmmaking and not just for like uh you know uh art for art's sake but those touches like the split diopter shots they really uh they really enhance like the mood of a scene when pony boy wakes up and he sees johnny and the dead body that's going to be this jarring moment for them and right when um we we see uh, like a shot on pony boy he's being as he's being drowned and then there's just a splash of red i like that yeah i like that just a swirl of red and then it fades out and then you wake up and or then we cut to the next scene <laughs> And you find out Johnny has stabbed Leaf Garrett. And that's what that splash of red was. Like, I love that. Like, that wouldn't be in just if you hired someone to do a job and they just, okay, step one, step two, step three. Like, that wouldn't be in there. Mm-hmm. There's shots where the, uh, the, uh, the greasers are just walking and we see just their legs walking and a Mustang, the cool, like, year model mustang is like driving up behind them and you get this real this real sense of like a monster or something like creeping up on them that happens right before right before the scene where yeah johnny stabs leaf garrett it happens when pony boy and emilio estevez are walking and then that turns out to be a non-violent confrontation i just love those shots it's an incredibly well-made movie like i've watched this for this episode, I watched it four times. I watched this version, I watched the director's cut, and I watched both commentaries. There's a couple commentary, then there's a cast commentary, which is great and highly recommend it. And it just, it just like when we watched every version of Apocalypse Now, it's like I was never bored. I was never not looking forward to it. I got really excited to watch it every time because it is an incredibly well-made movie. And that's what makes it all the more weird when you read these like two-star reviews, like people were seemed very dismissive of this movie. Like people did not care for One from the Heart so much. Some critics really liked it and appreciated its weirdness, but this movie people are really like, it's all like two and a half stars. It's like Leonard Maltin, two and a half star. Like it's all like, to me, that's like great. It's like, to me, that's a dismissive movie review. It's not like you don't hate it. You don't love it. You're just kind of like, yeah, that was a movie, whatever. And just the fact that people, the movie made its money back, I think. Like it did okay. Yeah, it was a moderate it, success. It yeah. wasn't a big 
big hit, but I mean, it made movie for, I mean, it made, the movie made movie. <laughs> the movie made money for the people it was supposed to make money for. And yeah. it, it kind of helped Coppola out financially. It didn't solve all his problems, but you know, it, it gave him something to throw at his creditors. But it's funny that people like, I think a lot of people or critics look at this as sort of his first, like, this is when he just started making this hack work, you know, like one from the heart isn't great, but like he tried to do something different, but here's the beginning of him just like cranking about, like talking about him as if he's like Ron Howard or somebody just showing up to finish a movie that wasn't his or, you know, like, but yeah, just like, totally not true. Like, it's like not. Like he's like just this, doing it for the money and, and to yeah. certain yeah, he was doing it for the money, but there's still, yeah. to me, there is still passion and oh, yeah. uh, an individuality to this movie and yeah. to the, the filmmaker the same way that to me there is something about though on a far lesser scale to dementia 13 arguably is done like for the money i mean also for like it's the first time he gets to direct a movie do this you have a certain amount of time roger corman just said like just make a movie like do it however you want and coppola did there's some uh, interesting shots. There's some interesting approaches in Dementia 13, you know, that show a promise there, an artistic promise that he definitely followed up on. And yeah. I see that still with The Outsiders. You know, it's not as uh, stylized as something like The Conversation or The Rain People. It's not as surreal and wild as apocalypse now i mean there is still some some real i think artistic merit it wasn't just something turned out just to cash in on the success of the novel to me i agree and it'll be interesting to see going forward if he keep, he keep if he keeps this and I, and I think he will like i think he can't help but try to make something interesting he's not one just to show up and have them, them set up the shots for him and just kind of do it and just kind of go home and clock in and clock out he's not I don't think he's ever going to be that kind of filmmaker. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe we'll get to some of the later movies. He'll be like, oh yeah, he totally just like went through the motions on that one. But I feel like he can't help but be like, if he was obsessive and weird about Vim Vendors making Hammett, that's not even a movie that Coppola made. And Coppola had a lot of ideas in, the, in trying to figure that movie out. So like, I think he is a true filmmaker who just will make something interesting no matter what. And Either way, him making this movie made it so he can make Rumblefish and get excited about that. So like to totally throw this movie away is silly that a lot of people, I think now people appreciate this movie now much more than they used to, especially after the director's cut. But uh, yeah, it's just, this is sort of the beginning of the, he made The Godfather and then he just made these kind of bland, weird, these movies that aren't as good as The Godfather. But it's like, well, yeah, there's not a lot of movies that are as good as The Godfather. Like he went off of quite a run from Godfather through Apocalypse Now, like those are like the best, some of the best movies ever made. And, you know, by many people, the best movies ever made. And it's going to be a hard act for anyone to follow and to kind of build it up for him like that. And just to kind of tear him down so easily is, is silly. It's just dumb to be like, well, yeah, okay. It's not as good as Apocalypse Now. Yeah. He didn't spend, you know, five years in the jungle making this one you know, but he still made a good movie. Maybe it's okay. Maybe maybe a film critic shouldn't think about the other movies someone made and just focus on what's in front of them. And you're absolutely right. And it is also difficult because as a critic, which 
I'll say we are. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> We're giving opinions about movies. No one's paying us, but that's what podcasts are for. Um, <laughs> it's hard not to bring your own experiences to viewing a movie, especially if like in Roger Ebert's review, he talks about, at first he talks about how The Outsiders is opening against the movie Bad Boys with Sean Penn. It's also about, you know, delinquent youths, uh, but contemporary. And he says that uh, The Outsiders is going to suffer from comparison because the, like, Bad Boys is, like, gritty and real and Outsiders is, like, stylized and romanticizes uh, these kids uh, and, you know, their lifestyle. And it's not, it's not realistic. He mentions, let's see, in The Outsiders, Matt Dillon is required to do little more than standard rebel without a cause behavior, alluding to, was it Nicholas Ray? Yeah. Nicholas Ray, like we mentioned. The problem, I'm afraid, is with Coppola's direction. He seems so hung up on with his notions of a particular movie look, with his perfectionistic lighting and framing and composition that the characters wind up like pictures framed and hanging on the screen. There's not much life in this movie or spontaneity. It's a stylistic exercise. The man who made the Godfather pictures and Apocalypse Now is a great director. He ought to reserve these exercises for the rehearsal halls of his fancy and get back to making movies. <laughs> like, damn, like that is not a two and a half star review. That's like a one star review. <laughs> half star on Unnecessary, Mr. Ebert. <laughs> I love I, you, but that's unnecessarily mean. And also, like, I feel like, and we're going to always run into this when we, and we're guilty of it too. It's just like, it's so hard for good artists and entertainers to escape their greatest achievements. Like everything that Orson Welles is, you know, has made will be compared to Citizen Kane and everything Coppola will make is Godfather. But like any good entertainer artist, they're hopefully going to keep making things and keep doing things and keep trying new things and not just make the same thing over and over again. And so it's like, what do you want from them? What, and, like, and to constantly expect and demand a five-star masterpiece from a person every time they try to make anything is ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous for anyone. And, like, and I think that's the, like the big problem people have with Coppola. Like often, always, my whole life, I've heard film fans talk about this, this era of Coppola as sort of like, a warning for all filmmakers of just like, you make these great movies, but then you just make these weird, dumb things. And then you can't, it's hard for you to ever come back. Like you, like you should have been more careful. Like you should have made less movies. You should have been like a Kubrick or a Tarantino and been very particular with what you make. But like Coppola loves movies and he like wants to make movies constantly. That's like his life. So you can't, he's not gonna make a movie every five years. He's not a Michael Mann. He's going to make a movie every year or in this year, make two movies in one year because he's just excited to, to make movies. Just like there's certain actors that'll, there's Daniel Day-Lewis who takes his time and then there's actors who just like to act all the time and make movies all the time. And one is not better than the other. And yeah, maybe you'll have some things that aren't as good as other things, but maybe we don't need to be making these grand lists and we can just appreciate, you know, every step of the way, you know, like, why, why, why do you, like, why throw something away because it's not like another thing this person made, you know, 15 years before it. 
And I think things made by great people, their misfires end up be, being rediscovered eventually, you know, like with the outsiders. I think like at the time people get like, because you can imagine like in the moment, you're like three years before this, you saw Apocalypse Now in the theater for the first time. And now there's this movie. So you're kind of like caught up in this thing. And then there's like, you're just deflated. But now that we have, you know, 30 something years to like have this sit and look back at it and we can just take it out of this hype that it was around, you can appreciate it. You can, you can love it even. Yeah, um, like, a, a, you know, a director, a, a, an artist can have a certain, I mean, they can go on a streak and get a number of hits in a row, like, uh, you know, artistic hits or financial hits. So stands to reason then they could have a series of misses and flops in a row. But that doesn't mean necessarily that those are void of all quality. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of like what uh, what your other podcast, The World Is Wrong, <laughs> is is about. Yeah, yeah, movie. Yep, yeah, it's easy to hate a movie, and but it's it's harder to like go back like Indiana Jones and dust it off and find out what's interesting and good about it. Like it actually takes work. And luckily people did their work with The Outsiders. I think people really like this movie now. The one thing I don't like about this version is the soundtrack. The, Car the Carmine Coppola soundtrack is so heavy-handed and it does not work for me. Really? At all. I don't, it's too, it's that to me, that does make some of this dialogue hokey and cheesy. Okay, this is where <laughs> the episode is going to get interesting because I agree that the the score by Coppola's father Carmine which uh, Coppola instructed him to make like a big grandiose gone with the wind style mm -hmm. score will transition I think to the complete novel after this but yeah the the score is really out there and it's all orchestral like strings it's like right there but to me that adds to the film's feeling of being out of time because since it's not set in a specific year and if you don't know the exact year beach blanket bingo came out this film just takes place in the generic past like if i saw this when i was a kid it'd be like oh yeah the 50s when you know like my grandparents were young and it's just all kind of caught up in this weird nebulous like long ago time and if you have watched movies from that era, the 50s, the 60s, they would, they would look like this. I mean, black and white, obviously, but they would have a score like this. The dialogue would be like this. It's like Coppola made a movie from the past. Like he made a movie that would have been released in 1956 you know, or 57. And people would have thought like, oh, this isn't as good as Nicholas Ray's uh, Rebel Without a Cause. You know, there's no, like, there's barely any swearing in this movie. Mm hmm There's, like, it's almost... like a true PG movie other than the yeah. violence. Even the violence is after, like, you don't really see it, you know? Yeah, you don't really see it. Like, you see, like, bruises and, like, you know, bloody, uh, bloody noses and stuff. But, yeah, to me, it's so... It really did feel like a movie out of time. Like, oh, The Outsiders, that movie from the 80s? It's not an 80s movie. You know, not like how Risky Business is an 80s movie. This movie feels like a movie from the 50s and that score really like brings it home. And to me, the score makes the sentiment okay. 
because it's all part of this like uh, fable atmosphere. You know, like mm-hmm. this is a story that like grandpa is is telling you about the time when he was young, long yeah. ago, back <laughs> when the cars looked like this and the music was like this and we all dressed like uh, like this and you're like, okay, like, yeah, that's how just how everyone dressed before I was born. You know, not like in 1965 or 1962 or whatever. It's just this general, just general like romanticized idea of long ago. And so I really like the score. To me, it makes the the sentiment, the corniness, okay. It's funny because when you watch the actors' commentary, they all complain about the score. They're all like, "Oh, this ruined these mo- these true moments we build are just like you know like ruined by the score." And then on Coppola's commentary, he is like, "Yeah, this like my father's score. Just even he's not really happy with it. He's just sort of like, yeah, this isn't like." Like I had him do this thing and then I realized it was totally wrong. And then I think that will lead us to start talking about the complete novel. If, if you're, if you're ready to move on to the complete novel, well, let's pause for a second and talk about what the complete novel is before we get it, but we can then go back to the score for that one. So the movie, the 2000 early aughts, Coppola's granddaughter who is now in school is reading the outsiders. And their class is going to watch the movie. And they're like, hey, can your grandfather come in and show, like, show the movie that he made? And Coppola was like, oh, shit. I need to watch that movie again. I think I need to like, fix that. I'm embarrassed by Because I guess over the years, he kept getting letters from many people complaining that he left out their favorite part of the book or where's the beginning, where's the end, where's this thing, where's that. And so he decided to go back. Uh, just like he did a few years earlier with the Apocalypse Now Redux and do a whole new movie, basically. And they remastered it beautifully. He added 22 minutes of footage, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it's enough to make the movie feel very different to me. And then, of course, completely overhauled the soundtrack as so many people complained about his dad's soundtrack. He had to wait for his father to pass away and then took his father's soundtrack off the movie and put on all these uh, pop songs and rock and roll songs that he wanted to at the time, but didn't at the time because his father hated rock and roll music and maybe they didn't quite have the rights or the money to buy the songs that they used for this version. And it really is like a whole different movie. It, the tone of it is so different. It's an interesting experience. It's not like Apocalypse Now and all the director's cuts still feel like Apocalypse Now in its way. It's just it's sort of like we're now in a different way, a tangent or whatever. Yeah, these outsiders, it's like a different, Two different movies. style. Yeah. Yeah. Because basically he added all these Elvis songs. Like it's a very Elvis heavy soundtrack for the complete novel. And then the beginning, it's like 15 minutes more at the beginning where you're really setting up. So it's the opposite of what you liked about the original version where we're just kind of dropped in. Now it's like, we're going to meet literally everybody. We're going to meet all... 20 of these characters, some in the same shot. There's a shot in the complete novel where it's one take and it's literally like characters coming in from left and right being like, oh, hello, hi. And they leave and the next one comes in and it is sort of like, we're just kind of meeting everybody. We're just kind of, you really know who they are even more. And it makes the movie, what's weird is the original version feels kind of more movie about Matt Dillon's character and C. Thomas Howell. 
Whereas the complete novel really feels like it's kind of about all these people at the same time. Yeah, especially um, Soda Pop, Rob Lowe's character, has a lot more scenes and has a big emotional moment at the end, which to me comes still kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> because Pony Boy and Johnny and Dallas are the central characters of the movie. Yeah. And it's what's interesting about the soundtrack change, that's to me where it really makes the movie feel different because now like the original movie feels kind of sad. It has that sort of wistful looking back at childhood, lost time, working well with the theme of stay gold, you know, of this sort of like this time of innocence or this time of like when you were not grown up. And now with this sort of constant rock and roll, heavy Elvis soundtrack, it's kind of more fun and has more of like a sense of adventure. Like when they go to the church in this version, it has a totally different feel. Like it's kind of sad and scary in the original. In this one, it's like, we're going on an adventure. We're hopping a train. It's really fun. And like the whole movie's like that. The whole movie doesn't really feel as sad anymore. Now it's like this kind of fun, crazy movie about these greasers. Yeah, it's almost really interesting. Like, it feels like a romp. And I don't like it i don't like the complete <laughs> novel i feel like all of these pop songs which i have to emphasize so much so that i will use the words i have to emphasize i like this music on its own i like all of these songs but i do not like them in this movie <laughs> the, the biggest difference to me aside I mean, though, the biggest, even more so than the additional 20 minutes of movie is the addition of this pop soundtrack, which I do not like. I feel like it undercuts the drama of the movie, the seriousness of the movie. Like these kids, they're on the lam. They just, one of them just murdered someone. The other is an accessory to murder. They're on the lam. They hop on a boxcar and there's a song playing about like, hopping on a boxcar and when they get into the the abandoned church there's a song about like oh this building is old and rusty <laughs> and then when they're cutting their hair this fucking song is like lend me your comb <laughs> and coppola did not like like coppola you know like the, his father wrote a good score he felt like you know on its own like that's good music dad but like he didn't like it for the movie because he felt it was too on the nose it was too obvious but all these pop songs are almost like this they are like blatantly obvious there's a song about cutting your hair while they're cutting their hair it's almost like watchman level the lyrics match up to what's going on on screen and I, I think that makes it like a gimmick <laughs> and when like the uh, when the greasers I'm sorry when the socias roll up on Johnny and Pony Boy and the murder happens I don't know exactly what I can't remember what the song is but it it's has out like, of limits I yeah it has like a twi it has like a twilight zone kind of feel to it to me it makes it it makes it like like oh like it, it's a romp still but like, like uh, something serious is about to happen. The only time I feel when the pop music works is for the big rumble. Yeah. And that, that's, that there's a lot of instrumental music that's like a surf sort of like Link Ray type music by uh, Michael Seif 
I'm going to say his name. Michael Seifreit and Dave Petrut. Don't know who those guys are, but they did a new, I think in 2005 when he did this cut, I think that music was recorded for this version. It doesn't feel like old, like he wouldn't have recorded it back in 83. So they must have had these guys come in and do this sort of surf link race soundtrack. Um, and I guess when he made the movie, according to Rob Lowe, before every scene, he played them these songs that are now in this version. He played them like, here's this Elvis song. We're listen to this Elvis song. Listen to it, feel it. And now we're going to do the same. So it was sort of in his head at the time, but not enough to actually do it. Or who knows, maybe he didn't have the money to, if you're trying to make a cheap movie, you probably can't afford 10 Elvis songs. But 2005 Coppola can afford 10 Elvis songs. I disagree. I think this version is way better. <laughs> I like the music more. I like it that it's a more fun movie. To me, it makes it feel more like, like a, like a, like, um, I don't know. Like, I, I like that it has that kind of like fun, greaser, crazy, like it feels more like this is the music these kids would have listened to at the time. It doesn't feel like this, this sort of like throwback old movie. And now it just feels more like, if I'm there at this time and this is like, this is the music that's in these guys' heads while they're doing these things. And I like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just like, cause I love kind of rockabilly greaser fun movies. Like, like, like Robert Rodriguez is road racers. is like a movie that has this kind of soundtrack and it's got this fun edge or like the delicate delinquent or like wild at heart or, you know, that kind of, fun greaser where it feels more almost more like an elvis movie <laughs> and not some yeah. heavy-handed <laughs> drama <laughs> like, yeah, that's like it feels like it's a fun movie but this story is a serious <laughs> story you know but is it only serious because of the music because when i'm watching this version it doesn't feel as serious because the music is telling me otherwise so i'm kind of caught up in oh this is more like a hardy boys fun like they killed the guy you know, on the lamb but this is more like an adventure this isn't like some sad thing. This is like an adventurous thing. <laughs> I mean, this is good, this is good film theory going on right here. Because <laughs> I do feel that the story, it, I feel like the story itself is, is serious. And yeah, like this music, the pop music, at least the specific songs chosen by Coppola for the complete novel, make it feel like, yeah, like this is all like a lark. It's like a, this adventure we're having when it's not like it's like it's, someone is dead we're going to be involved in a murder case uh pony boy and soda pop are probably going to be like taken away and put in like a you know a children's home or like foster care you know uh it like the 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 danger is 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 gone to me because there's this jaunty pop music and to me like it's like in one from the heart a, a problem i had was that the music was a bit too on the nose like tom waits and crystal knight gale. crystal gale crystal gale crystal gale that's a real name <laughs> <laughs> what i just said is a total fake name <laughs> a suit like you, you would use as a pseudonym for a novel at Crystal Gale, what they're singing, like they're singing like what's going on on screen. And I don't need Tom Waits to to grumble sing me that. I, <laughs> I can see it and I can feel it to a certain extent. <laughs> and I also did and so I don't need 
th- this music to, <laughs> to tell me how it feels. And I guess, you know, and then we get into like, do you listen to the, 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 the tone of a song or, or to the lyrics of a song? Because I just hear the lyrics describing, like, kind of describing what's happening on screen. But then there's also times when, like, I think the music is just too, it's too light. It's too jaunty. It's too fun. Yeah. See, I thought with the original score, it was too sad and too melodramatic. And isn't it the same thing? Like when a music is like, when you have that John Williams type music of like, it's really sad now. How's that any different than having a song where the words are telling you what's going on? You're still telling people how they should feel. Isn't that the same thing? <laughs> I mean, it's all, cinema is all manipulation. It's image and sound intentionally put together to make you feel something. And I, I mean, whether we agree or not, it's fine. But I think it's definitely an interesting experience to watch both versions because it's a good lesson for like film students of like just changing the music makes the movie feel so different. And that's very fascinating to me. It, it, no, it totally is. It totally is. If it's not for the music, I really wouldn't have a problem with the complete novel. I don't mind the additional scenes, even though I feel like some of them really don't need to be there. I mean, the first, uh, yeah, the first 15 minutes of the movie, which is entirely added in, and it's also entirely nearly beat for beat, chapter one of the novel. Pony Boy begins when I stepped out of the theater, you know, theater into the light and all that. And then, uh, yeah, he gets chased down by the, uh, the Soches. They beat him up just because... And then everyone comes to his rescue and then he introduces everyone very specifically. Derry looked like this and he acted like this. And so the pop looked like this. He was friends with, with two bit who was the funny guy and, and so on and so on. And that is the first 12 minutes of the movie. It's just, we meet all these characters. Like he said, sometimes in the same shot, Tom Cruise does another backflip off the car so if you want to see him do a backflip off a car twice watch the complete <laughs> and you can tell he hit his head because when he stands up out of the shot he's rubbing the back of his head like you can't like he does a backflip off a car and lands behind the car so you don't see the landing and clearly it hurt because he comes up kind of like unless he's just a really good actor and the character's supposed to do it i think he really did it hurt himself he's kind of like oh it looks like he is I, I i would i would wager that he did really hurt himself because the expression on his face, I mean, again, unless he was just a naturally super talented actor, which he may which be. He is. <laughs> uh, it looks like like a guy who literally just did a backflip off a car. I hit my head. I hurt myself, but I'm like shaking it off now. Like, oh, yeah, like I hit my head, but it doesn't really hurt right now. <laughs> And then the ending of this uh, version has this weird scene in the courtroom where they're kind of going through, uh, they're te- like, like they're like kind of doing that. This is now the trial of like who killed Leif Garrett or like wh- whether or not uh, Pony Boy should go to a home or whatever. And it's re it gets the movie gets extra arty there. Like it looks it's it gets like it feels like a different movie where it's like a dream sequence. It feels like a dream because it's it's a more of that split diopter, but also like weird superimposition and weird close-ups. And it doesn't, it moves really fast because it's like Matt Dillon's character dies. And then all of a sudden we're on this weird whirlwind, like 
dreamy sequence of going through this courtroom scene, which is treated sort of nonchalantly. And I guess on the commentary, couple is like, yeah, I was already thinking about Rumblefish when I was directing this stuff. So I just was <laughs> like in my head with Rumblefish and like, I wanted to make this weird artier movie. Like I couldn't wait to make the, the more auteur movie, but I still had to finish some scenes for the outsiders. And you can tell it does not quite fit with how the rest of the movie uh, looks. That makes sense that if Coppola was kind of checked out for these like final scenes, if they were shooting in order, because it all feels tacked on, not just because it was literally tacked on as all this extra footage between when Dallas gets killed and the ending of the movie, which is still the same. He starts to write the, the, the story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it all just feels like none of it needs to be there. And no. it's interesting to point out this movie was a shot chronologically, which is not how movies are normally made at all. But he wanted, I don't know the reasoning. He didn't say, my guess is to kind of let these people feel like they're kind of growing on this journey. But the movie was basically shot in order. It makes sense that by the end of the movie, he's like looking at his watch being like, where's Rumblefish? <laughs> when, when can I get to the Rumblefish? Because to me, some of these uh, scenes are in a way, and I hope it doesn't come off derogatorily, but they are the most copalous scenes in that they are in and of themselves good scenes and interesting scenes, but they don't really fit into the movie, like the trial scene, because it's so like dreamy. And I guess to suggest that Pony Boy is still in a daze from this experience. Yeah, because he faints, because he faints in this version. After Dallas gets shot, Pony Boy faints hits the ground and then it goes into this weird other stuff. So I, it, that's why it worked for me because it feels like we're in this sort of weird headspace of Pony That's a good scene in and of itself, but I don't think it fits. And then the penultimate scene, I think, is Pony Boy and Derry having a fight and Soda Pop, like they both look to Soda Pop and he runs out and then they all they run after him and they're all out in a field and Rob Lowe gets this great scene where he talks about how he's always like caught in the middle and like he sees it from both sides and can't you guys see like <clears throat> from both sides and I just like want you know us to like get along and why you always have to pull me apart and mm-hmm. it's this great scene like Rob Lowe good actor right and mm-hmm. turns out always a always a good actor yeah uh gets this great scene and if the focus is him is not pony boy it's it's an odd scene because it is about him specifically it doesn't really feel like it's about the brothers Uh, but then again this whole movie doesn't feel like it's about the brothers but if you watch it on its own it is a good scene of family drama and to me they both kind of remind me of the french plantation scene in apocalypse now which is a good scene from beginning to end on its own. But when put into the rest of this movie, doesn't really work. And to me, interrupts the flow of the movie, much as I like that French plantation scene. And I do like 
the uh like surreal nature of the courtroom scene and i like the uh the drama and the acting in in soda pop's uh, speech in that family scene to me they don't fit with the rest of the movie mm-hmm. i was mostly disappointed like i i prefer the complete novel i did i made a disagreement on with you on that but the thing that i was disappointed about was that there wasn't more Tom Waits because I assumed there was going to be more Tom Waits. So Tom Waits is in the original as sort of the guy who runs this roadhouse bar where Matt Dillon's living. And Tom Waits is in it for literally like long enough to answer a door and let people in and then he's just done. Because he's in the opening credits. So like we're promised to Tom Waits in the opening credits. Like he's one of the main people listed. So I'm like, oh man, Tom Waits, this is going to be great. And he's just like, hello, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> And so I thought, oh man, the complete novel is going to clearly have more Tom Waits, which I'm guessing you were happy with since you hate Tom Waits. I hear <laughs> one from the heart review. <laughs> I don't. I just I don't get his music. Like I don't even really dislike well, it. No music from him in this movie, but it, it's interesting that Tom Waits is back working with Coppola again, and this won't be the last time we see Tom Waits in a no. couple of movies. Um, I will say, I will say, I watched the theatrical version and then like, wait, wasn't Tom Waits supposed to be in this? Like, wait, what character was he? And so then when I'm watching the complete, the complete novel version, like, wait, he's that young guy? Uh, he's that guy with sideburns. He's that young guy with sideburns who answers the door? <laughs> like, it never occurred to me that Tom Waits was once like a young man. <laughs> Like, I like, like the idea of flying him all the way out to Tulsa just to answer a door. Like, that's how much Coppola loved Tom Waits. I wanted to hang out with him for at least a day. To me, Tom Waits is always Renfield from Francis <laughs> Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. And yeah, so which it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the guy that looked like that in this movie. I'm like, <laughs> where's Tom Waits? Because to me, that makes sense that Tom Waits would look like Renfield from that version of Dracula. I mean, you've seen Down by Law. That was just, that was kind of around this time. That was like three years after this. Like he looks more or less like that in Down by Law, doesn't he? Like a handsome younger. I've, I've never seen Down by Law. What? No. You have to watch that movie's great. That you being the biggest Roberto Benini fan in the world, I can't believe you've no. never seen Down by Law. I, I do remain the only person very happy that Roberto Benini won not one but two Oscars. <laughs> He's the, the second person and the one of two people to win an Oscar for directing himself. Yeah. Who's the other? Laurence Olivier. Oh, for uh, what, Hamlet? or for, Yeah, for Hamlet. Directed himself to a Best Actor win. Roberto Benigni directed himself to a Best Actor win. The two greats. <laughs> that, does that mean you were a really, really good director then? If you can get the best performance from yourself and, be, and still make a great movie? That's pretty good. I mean, Vincent Gallo should have won that for Buffalo 66. He should have won Best <laughs> Actor and Best Director. Um <laughs> Who else? Uh, Albert Brooks should have won it every year that he was ever in a movie. Uh, every every great Orson Welles, of course, should have won director and actor for Citizen Kane. So uh, strangely, this movie is this the first Coppola movie in a long time to be nominated for zero Oscars? 
You are right. Yeah. There's... One from the Heart even had what the music or some editing or something. There was something that One from the Heart was nominated for. One from the Heart had some music. Let me look up specifically what it was. But you're right because since I am a uh, a fan of the Oscars, we've been able to talk about them for a while now. I mean, there's even with the, yeah, for but there's nothing with this movie. Yeah, even one from the heart got an Oscar nomination for right, and we had to talk about how this is a weird fucking category. Best music, comma, original song score and its adaptation, or best adaptation score, Tom Waits. So even with one from the heart, the bomb of all bombs that bankrupted Coppola for over a decade, got one Oscar nomination. Outsiders received no major, no major nominations, uh, awards attention of any kind uh, under its awards tab on IMDb. <laughs> it's, don't look kids. <laughs> it's, uh, it played at the Moscow International Film Festival. <laughs> Uh, okay. played at a film, the played at a film festival, not award. It, it, <laughs> the movie uh, <laughs> it was a nominee of the Turkish Film Critics Association Awards for 1987. <laughs> I guess this didn't get released in Turkey until 1987. Huh. Not to not to downplay, you know, our our, our Turkish film critics, <laughs> but uh, yeah. It's, you know, after you've won, Coppola won, like, what, like, five Oscars by this point? Screenplay for Patton. This is the first movie of his since 1969 to not be nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. And then there are the 1984 Young Artist Awards, where C. Thomas Howell won Best Young Motion Picture Actor in a Feature Film. And Diane Lane was nominated for Best Young Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture. I, I don't know that the Young Artist Awards still exist <laughs> or were ever really a thing. Well, let's, yeah. let's pause for a second and let's look at the 1984 Oscars and see, like, supporting actors. for Because in my mind, there's no one in this movie that would have been nominated for Best Actor because they're all kind of supporting except for maybe see Thomas Howell, but it's the kind of movie like The Irishman, where it's like, they all kind of count as supporting actors. There's no, like, you know, like Joe Pesci and Pacino in the movie a lot, but they're supporting. I just brought that up because I wanted another episode where we mentioned The Irishman, but. <laughs> it was ruin this time, streak. not me, not we me. didn't want to ruin the streak of us. Con I guess that's our favorite movie the last five years because we keep talking about it, but so. 1984 Oscars for movies in, uh, in, uh, from 83. Supporting actor, Jack Nicholson for Terms of Endearment. Charles Durning for the Mel Brooks remake of To Be or Not To Be. John Lithgow for Terms of Endearment. Sam Shepard for The Right Stuff. Rip Torn for a movie called Cross Creek, which I've never heard. I don't know what that movie is. Do you know what that, have you ever heard of Cross Creek? No. Oscar-nominated movie, Cross Creek. So, I mean, all those actors are great actors. 
But I mean, maybe Charles Durning isn't as good as Matt Dillon in this movie. <laughs> like, maybe, like, really? Like, is it because they're too young? Is it because this it has this stench to people of like this is not as good as other couple of things? Because like, think about like the Godfather movies. Everybody's now in for an Oscar for like Godfather Two. Like, so many multiple supporting actor. Oscar, like, wasn't it three people from Godfather 2 nominated for supporting actor and it went to uh, De Niro? Three people right. from Godfather 1, Pacino, James Caan, and, and Bobby Duvall, because we know him so well now. <laughs> and then in Godfather 2, it was, um, <laughs> why did I just say in my head Leif Garrett? Not Leif Garrett, the, the great acting teacher. Stra Strasberg. Strasberg, Lee Strasberg. And, yeah. and De Niro. And, and wasn't Michael Gotso also up for yeah, the Best yeah. Supporting Actor? That's three people. Then you have this movie, The Outsiders, full of like, who all became amazing actors. And maybe not as good as, you know, those people in Godfather 2, but Matt Dillon certainly is. Like, I, I think C. Thomas Howell certainly. Ralph Macchio is really good. Is this Ralph Macchio's first movie? It is. Like, he was um, amazing in this movie. He He's had been in good. just a few things before this. He was in he was in a couple TV movies called High Powder, Dangerous Company. He had a recurring role on Eight Is Enough, and he was in a movie called Up the Academy. Which great movie. Familiar. That's a Robert Downey Sr. sex comedy. Oh, and okay. it's it's a, it's a Mad Magazine movie called Mad Magazine Presents. Up the, you're right. I forgot Ralph Macchio's in Up the Academy. But this is the first movie where he's really showing off his really good acting chops. Like, this is the Ralph Macchio we love from, like, Karate Kid. Like, this is, like, a very right. emotive, emotive, like, feels very grown up in a little kid's body, Ralph Macchio. You're absolutely right. And Karate Kid is the next year after The Outsiders. Wow. And in a way, I mean, much as I love Karate Kid, it was a very important movie to me as a small child. Like, my mother has mm -hmm. no no end of photos of me in like white pajamas doing mm. karate kid poses <laughs> it was i realize now it was a big deal for karate kid was a big deal for me because ralph macchio though he is not latin hispanic or whatever you want to call us now he is like tan he's dark complected yeah and that was a big deal to me as a kid seeing like there's one movie <laughs> where there's a guy that looks like me that is the main character. And he's so a, like, I, I love that movie. Cause he's a very Italian looking, cause he's Italian American name. And so he's, but he's like, definitely like, he must be, I guess he must be Sicilian. Cause that's a dark Italian. That's, that's yeah. where my fan, that's my family too. And it's funny when I was a 70 pound weakling in ninth grade, in ninth grade, I weighed like 80 pounds. I constantly got compared to the Ralph Macchio and I think they were trying to diss me, but I took that as a badge of honor being my own, uh, you know, half Sicilian little skinny guy <laughs> in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, I've always loved, and he, and Ralph Macchio to see, like, he's so, he's the most likable character in this movie. Like you really love him, which is interesting because he's the only one who kills somebody, but yet you like him the most. Like there's something so, warm and genuine about his care about johnny in this and the way he plays it and like it it's so sad everything that happens to him because he you really want it to work out okay for him more than anybody else 
Yeah, when he's like laid up in traction, his legs don't work anymore. And like, even if he lives, he's going to have to be in a wheelchair. The doctor says he's not even able to walk on crutches anymore. Matt Dillon's like, hey, like, we won the rubble. We won the rumble. Like, this is the good news that's going to make you pull through. He's like, what's the point? (laughs) (laughs) What's the point? (laughs) What's the point? And then he like whispers, stay gold to pony yeah. boy and then dies it's like That's so good. dark and bleak and you totally yeah. understand like yeah that might send someone that cared about this guy off on a a, a dangerous bender that ends <laughs> in his own death yeah like yeah if it was, if it was ralph Mach, i would put up from this movie i'd put up like ralph Macchio or matt dylan yeah and having not seen all of these movies i don't know who i would who I would boot out. I mean, Charles Durning's but, fine um, to be or not to be. He's good. He's always good. Charles Durning's always good. But like, I Ralph don't Macchio. remember John Lithgow in terms of endearment, but it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. I've never seen that movie. I've, I've, I think I've only ever watched that movie as a kid with my mom. I don't think I've ever seen it as an adult. Best Pictures for 83 was Terms of Endearment, which won. The Big Chill, another ensemble movie with a bunch of people who were not quite famous yet. Uh, the Dresser, the Albert Finney movie, I think, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Right Stuff, another movie full of just tons of famous people. Uh, and Tender Mercies, which is an amazing Bobby Duvall film where he plays a cowboy. I think is that maybe the first time he plays a cowboy? I don't know. But, uh, you know... New York and Robert Duvall, we all fell in love with him as a man from Texas. Uh, that movie shot not too far from here, like maybe 20 minutes north of here. Oh. Um, yeah, those are all good movies. I think The Outsiders is really good. I think The Outsiders takes a little more chances than some of these movies. But it, yeah, this, the, the movie, it, it, it was, wasn't its time in 1983. It took, took some time for people, maybe still, to figure out how actually interesting it is. Yeah, I think this movie is really good. I was I agree. Yeah. And watching it uh, again for for the second time in my life, having not read the book before, I was thinking like, wow, this really is an art movie for kids. Mm-hmm. It's about these big emotions and these serious themes. I don't know, like I just like this was the time like I got it. I really me too. I, I feel like, the same way. Like I watched, I've seen it before, like maybe 11 years ago, but watching it again this time, I'm like, this movie's really, really good. And it's as good as a lot of other Coppola stuff. The movie's great. And there's a lot of Coppola, obvious Coppola stuff in it. Like, I don't know about you, but when the movie starts in the original version, when you see that sunset, I was hoping to see helicopters <laughs> across the screen. It just felt like very apocalypse now, like the sunsetty stuff. The part when C. Thomas Howell is flipped upside down and back up in the fountain, that reminded me of the end of Apocalypse Now when Martin Sheen is turned upside down and the camera yeah. turns with him. And then just the three brothers in that relationship felt very godfathery with like the relationship between the brothers and the Godfather movies. Yeah, um, you're right. That really made me uh, think about like this is a, a Coppola movie about like family. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the your actual family, your extended, like, crime, fam, crime in quotes, family, just the people, the circle that you trust, because there are more greasers than the characters we meet. Yeah. You know, 
there's more levels of uh of criminal than the ones we meet like dallas is the like the one that actually has a record but he's still like crime adjacent and you get the feeling that like tom waits even though you only see him for like one scene you're like oh this is like yeah there's some this is the serious like the serious like crime crime boss of this (laughs) town and when they meet up with other greasers from the rum at the rumble there's yeah. this one guy they keep mentioning Tim Shepard, uh, who's like this is the guy who's actually like has a gang, like a criminal gang, and like he's the crit, like we know him, but he's a criminal, so we need to kind of be like careful around him. And he's the only actor in the movie who I didn't really recognize, like Glenn Withrow, who played Tim Shepard. Like he mm-hmm. is an interesting face, but I don't really know who he is like he's in a bunch of movies i've seen like he's in dudes and he's in uh he was in a lot he did some tv like the waltons and he was in episodes of things but like he and he's going to show up in rumblefish but um he was like kind of the only one of these guys who didn't become a star uh but his character is in the movie a lot and he's got a very interesting kind of tough he looks the most real out of all of them he looks the most tough like believably tough where you think like he like watching this movie you think he just lived in Tulsa and was like hey I'm a greaser who lives here can I be in your movie which wasn't true but that's sort of like what like his his character feels like and there's a weird scene in the complete novel where he's just sort of like hanging out at their house like Ponyboy comes home and he's just like chilling on the couch like he spent the night or whatever and he's like oh goodbye and he's kind of yeah he's, he, say, he says thanks for the use of your couch and leaves and it's this <laughs> odd weird moment where you're like right the criminal like he still has like he knows what manners are like that's for your couch and he leaves and the movie the the built the family thing also reminds me of of the godfather in that like 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 matt dillon is also kind of like a father figure to like ralph macchio and c thomas howell much like in the godfather how like the family seems to be extended beyond like there's the family family but then there's like the family the like the kind of the overall umbrella of all these mafia guys and that's sort of how these greasers all seem to be together sort of like they all help each other out they're all like this big group of brothers and then you have like patrick swayze and matt Dillon being kind of like the father and rob Lowe's kind of like the mother and it's sort of like this interesting dynamic with all these guys right it did remind me of that like uh i i was reminded of a scene in the godfather where clemenza is uh he's instructing michael on like how to use a gun and he tells michael that these things these wars they just they have to happen every like five or ten years just to let the bad blood out and i thought well well, that's the rumble like these two (laughs) groups they always hate each other yeah and then it finally went too far and then they're gonna have the rumble which is gonna settle things and then everything's gonna be like you know, on, on an even keel for a while. Yeah. That scene also felt very apocalypse now. It's like shirtless men fighting in the rain with a bunch of things on fire. There's something yeah. kind of apocalypse now, like about like that, that kind of reminded me of like the uh, Kurtz compound or the deleted scene where the guys are in the mud rolling around when they find the strippers in the crashed helicopter or the, the deserted helicopter. Um, 
Yeah, I like that the rumble stayed mostly in wide shots. There yeah. weren't close-ups of anyone like punching or getting punched. It was just a bunch of muddy guys that after a <laughs> while kind of all looked the same to me. <laughs> Maybe there's a message there. <laughs> and uh, just like with One from the Heart, there is an interesting Nicolas Cage bit of trivia for this. We, for One from the Heart, we talked about Nicolas Cage taught Raul Julia how to use nunchucks, which was great to learn. But in this one, I guess, and of course, for those who don't know, Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Coppola. He is Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. Uh, but he really wanted to be in this movie, of course, because he at the time was also a budding actor trying to get into the business. And this is the movie that every young actor was trying to get in that wasn't Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where all the other great actors got in. So those are the two movies, this and Fast That's Times. Everybody got into it. Where Nicolas Cage, as Nicolas Coppola, was uh, like one of the stoner, one of Sean Penn's stoner buddies in the movie. I think it might be the only movie where he's credited as Nicholas Coppola. He works in like the kitchen of the of the place where Judd, Judge Reinhold works or something. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. But like, so he got in that movie, doesn't have a big part. It's clearly him, but he really wanted to be in The Outsiders because of course his uncle is directing this big movie that's going to be a big deal for all these young actors. He really wanted to be in it. And I think he wanted to be Dallas. So he was like, I'm Dallas. I want to be the Dallas character. And so for him to prepare, this is classic Nicolas Cage. It's good to know that everybody's the same always. He prepared for, his, uh, for the role to audition for it by locking himself in a room for two weeks, drinking a bunch of beer, and only staring at a picture of Charles Bronson. And he thought that that would put him in the mindset to be this character. Didn't work. His uncle did not cast him. I think, the, I think Coppola was like, Maybe try out for this or that. And Nicolas Cage was like, forget it. Like, I, I wanted that one thing. I didn't get it, so forget it. And he's out. But we will see some Nick, we'll actually see Nicolas Cage in the first couple movie with Rumblefish. So that'll be the first of three movies that we're going to see Nicolas Cage make with his uncle starting with our next episode. So that's exciting. But I like the idea of Nicolas Cage drinking beer and just staring at Charles Bronson's <laughs> That's great. Yeah, he's always been Nicolas Cage. That's good to know. It's comforting. <laughs> Tom Cruise has always been Tom Cruise. Yep. Nicolas Cage has always been Nicolas Cage. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> so is there anything else about these movies before we, we move on? Two things. I just want to say that my favorite thing about these movies, either version, is Emilio Estevez. Yeah who son of Martin Sheen, a.k.a. Ramon Estevez. Yeah, he worked with his father in one movie and drove his father to the brink of having a heart attack. Right? He actually did have a heart attack. And then now his oldest son, I think his oldest son, Charlie's definitely younger, Charlie Sheen, is now in The Outsiders, and he's... 20 years old in this movie and I was a kid in the 90s so to me Emilio Estevez was coach Bombay in the Mighty Ducks <laughs> movies you know like uh, like Charlie Sheen was the movie star and Emilio Estevez was like doing like the Disney stuff and whatnot like to see him in this movie and to know from from the commentary that there was and from listening to the audiobook of the novel, there's not a lot to two bits character. 
we know that he's the funny guy because the narrator tells that he's the funny guy. And some of the scenes with that character are like they are in the novel, like when he's with uh, Pony Boy for for the day when they go to visit Johnny and they have a kind of run-in with the Soches, uh, a non-violent run-in with the Soches. But a lot of that was um, like, you know, Coppola wrote out some some jokes, some funny stuff for the character. But Emilio Estevez really like brought that character to life and uh some of the some of the lines he says is stuff that just emilio made up as they were shooting the movie and he just really he he really steals every scene he really does come across as the funny guy when he's walking johnny and pony boy home he finds he randomly finds a hat and he's like (laughs) hey now i'm wearing a hat i gotta go home guys see you later (laughs) And when Pony Boy's finally back, and um, he's trying, he's like Pony Boy's trying to make himself breakfast. He comes in, and uh, him and Tom Cruise come in, and they like pretend jump Pony Boy. Then they're talking to him about like you're like you're in the paper, man. You're a hero. Emilio Estevez goes into the refrigerator, pulls out a whole cake, whole cake, <laughs> and then just starts to eat the cake while watching uh, Mickey Mouse cartoons. <laughs> Actual Mickey, actual Disney Mickey Mouse cartoons. That's another thing that made this movie feel like real and lived into me. It's like, hey, there's a Disney thing. In a non-Disney movie with Disney things in it. Because yeah. this is back in the day when Disney was not doing so well and wasn't as protective, I guess, of their content. Yeah. And like, this is like right before, this is like right, like Emilio Estevez is about to break really big. Like this is sort of the beginning of the Brat Pack with him and Rob Lowe in this movie. Is this, I guess this could kind of be considered the first Brat Pack movie, even though they're the only two members of the Brat Pack. But this is the first movie with two Brat Packers together, right? Isn't this it? Like with Rob yeah, Lowe. Rob, Rob Lowe is definitely a Brat Packer. Because then they're both in this movie. And then it looks two like years after, after this is Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire. And that's when like Brat Pack are now like this thing. A year after this, most importantly to me is repo man uh, my fa- one of my favorite movies of all time and him sitting and eating the cake and drinking the beer and being kind of a wise guy reminded me of how he is in repo man as this kind of like punk kid just kind of being a wise ass i have to say so repo man it, it is a it's definitely like a, a cult movie right like it's uh, alex cox directed that mm-hmm Yes, it is like one of the cult movies. It has a reputation for being like a like a weird cult movie. But I promise you, if you watch it, you're go. There's a really really good chance you're gonna like it. Like it's not so weird to turn off a whole bunch of people. It's not like like oh, it's like only for certain tastes. Like like a John Waters movie. Yeah, like, it is weird. But it's very good and it's very fun. I mean, Criterion put it out. So clearly it's, you know, not just some, so obscure that no one should ever watch it. And the, the, to kind of reference back to our last episode, it's shot by Vim Vender's cinematographer, Robbie Mueller. So it's an amazing looking movie. Shot by Robbie Mueller the same year he also did Paris, Texas. So like it has these amazing wide shots, a great use of like empty space. It's a great, Repo Man is one of the great movies, I feel like. And Harry Dean Stanton, 
more Harry Dean Stanton. So you can't go wrong with a lot of Harry Dean Stanton. The other thing I wanted to mention is at one point or before the rumble, Emilio Estevez and Ponyboy tell Matt Dillon about the rumble and he's still in the hospital. He says like, we're going to win this rumble. We'll do it for Johnny. We're going to do it for Johnny, man. (laughs) And it sounds a little bit better than how I just said it. And to Matt Dillon's defense and his credit, I think it is really hard to say like, we're going to do it for this character. We're going to win one for this character and have it be taken seriously in any context, in any movie. That's just like a corny string of words to say. (laughs) But he sells it. (laughs) Yeah. And supposedly he didn't like his line delivery on that. And they did multiple takes, but it was what it was. Like that move, if that moment doesn't work for you, I don't think I love that, that moment. Is that moment's great because he asks for the, the knife and he holds uh, the switchblade close and kind of turns away from the camera and sort of like cradling this knife. I love that part. And then he, and he's like, we're going to do it for Johnny. Like I, I think he's a good enough actor that he sells that bit, uh, that part. And that's one of the more memorable parts of the movie. Like people often quote that thing. Another interesting thing was that in 1990, they tried to make an Outsiders TV show produced by Francis Ford Coppola and Fred Ruse. It's never been released, but you can find the pilot on YouTube. It was a, the, 90, the pilot is 90 minutes long, so it's like a movie, and it takes place immediately after the movie. The pilot actually begins with the scene of Matt Dillon getting shot, showing the scene from the movie with Matt Dillon running, getting shot, of course, does not show the faces of the outsiders running up because then it's this other group of young guys that were in the TV show. Uh, the sh- it was, at the time, the highest-rated drama in Fox's history when it premiered. Like, everyone, or everyone who watched Fox watched it. And uh, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's introduced by Bart Simpson because it's 1990. So Bart Simpson shows up and says, Hey, dudes, hey, man, don't have a cow. And the Simpsons aren't going to be on tonight. And Married Children's aren't going to be on tonight. But here's the premiere of The Outsiders. <laughs> and then it goes into this whole movie. And this is like this is like Beverly Hills 90210 era Fox. This actually premiered eight months before 90210. But it has that feel. It feels like, even though the, the show takes place in this nebulous 60s, 50s thing. But everybody looks like Luke Perry. Because like, they were like, here's eight to 10 guys with these sideburns that look handsome and it's the outsiders and uh david arquette plays two bit oh that's <laughs> that's a step down they, uh robert rustler who i love he's in nightmare on elm street 2 the the gay nightmare on elm street movie that one of my favorite that oh, the best he's, one he's the, the 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 male scream queen no, no, he, the, Robert Rustler is like the cool, the guy who would be in The Outsiders. Like he's the cool oh, okay, okay. guy, the friend. And then he, for me, he's most famous in my mind for being in Thrashin', the, skate, the Josh Brolin skateboarding movie. And Robert Rustler does the best air guitar I've ever seen in any movie ever. But he plays Tim Shepard in this, the character that we talked about, the actor who didn't really, we didn't know. And they kind of, in the show, make Tim Shepard to kind of replace Dallas, basically. So in the pilot, they're like, here's the cool guy that we all think is awesome, who's kind of unruly. It's now this guy, because we killed Dallas off. So now we have this guy. We're going to make him a main character. 
And so it's, it's Robert Rustler as sort of the more wise guy, East Coasty, like, uh, you know, loose cannon that was Matt Dillon in The Outsiders. Oh, my God. Very interesting. And Billy then Bob they, Thornton plays Billy, Buck Merrill? He plays the Tom Waits character. So Billy Bob Thornton's playing the Tom Waits character, and there's more scenes of them hanging out at this roadhouse and Billy Bob Thornton giving them, like, sage advice while he's pouring them drinks. And then there's a – because it was 1990 and they didn't want us to show with a bunch of dudes – they introduce a new character, this tomboy character played by Heather McComb, who is basically exactly Johnny. She's just doing Ralph Macchio. And there's even a scene where she and Ponyboy look at a sunset and have this very strong moment, just like in the Outsiders movie. The show did not last. It was only on for maybe like eight episodes. But I highly recommend, if you love these movies, to check out the pilot. Not because you'll love it, but just because it's very interesting that it exists that is crazy yeah yeah i had no idea this show existed <laughs> and coppola produced it so it is canon it's considered the, the continuation of the movie well you're it right starts with matt dylan dying it shows that scene at the beginning of the show um, a follow-up to the novel and film of the same name yeah, the and in Ger- continues. <laughs> and in the Germany, the pilot was released as its own movie called Outsiders Two: The Fight Goes On. <laughs> it's great. I mean, if you like David Arquette, you kind of see an early David Arquette Hammond. If you like Robert Rustler, like I do, because I love Nightmare on Elm Street Two, is good. And when I say it's the gay Nightmare on Elm Street, I don't, I'm not dissing it. It really is an amazing movie that seems to be about what it's like to be a gay man growing up and dealing with Freddy Krueger. That movie, you like that movie, right? Nightmare 2? Yeah, so, I mean... It's so it, good. It, it, it is not on the level of, of part one or part three. Uh, I have a problem with the ending, but I have a problem with the ending of all of those movies because none of them make sense. Even the one by Wes Craven, who knew the ending was not good, <laughs> but went with it anyway. But yeah, that that movie is in a lot of ways the most interesting because of the subtext that's totally not subtext of, yeah. of, of being gay and uh, just all the homoerotic stuff that's going on. This is like edgy and like subtext and stuff. And if you watch it now, you're like, no, this is like plain out there. And the star of that movie, Mark Patton, made an amazing documentary about sort of the ups and downs of being in the one gay Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Did you see that movie? No, I, I did. I didn't. I, I heard about it though. It's that really he has a really Scream intense Queen. conversation with the screenwriter. Yeah, it's called Scream Queen: My Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, and Robert what Rustler, why we're talking about this, he was in Nightmare Two, and he I, he presented the movie with Mark Patton, the both of them, and uh, and it's really good. But I like I just I love Robert Rustler. He's great in Nightmare Two. He's great. In thrashing, because that air guitar scene is the best. And he was actually the best actor in the Outsiders TV show when you watch it. And he, I feel he's a very fitting replacement like he, uh, for Matt Dillon uh, for a TV show. Like he has like that kind of nice Brando, tough guys, you know, like kind of edgy thing. So yeah, check out that pilot. It's really weird. It's like, it feels very 90s Fox. It's very interesting. All right. We've got to wrap this up because we are running long. (laughs) 
we're 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 closing in on our apocalypse now episode <laughs> hey we had two movies to talk about <laughs> we, we really did <laughs> we really did i'm excited to watch passion fish for the next episode. i've never seen it but not passion fish <laughs> that's a john sales movie i'm excited to see rumble fish i've never seen rumble fish and i'm really pumped to uh to get into that and see kind of how it compares to the outsiders Cool. Me too. I've never seen it. It was one of the few Coppola movies I was not aware of before we started this podcast. So I'm excited. I'm really excited knowing it was made directly after The Outsiders in that sort of Roger Corman spirit of, yeah. let's make another movie while we still we're, can. We're here already. <laughs> and so where else can we find you, AJ? I am blogging about movies occasionally, though uh, I am going to be putting out some reviews soon on cinemathenandnow.blogspot.com. I'll be tweeting about Oscar movies uh, soon, as I always do around this time of year. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at AJGO85. And uh, Brian, where else can we find you? I also have another podcast called The World is Wrong, which I do with Andras Jones. And uh, we, uh, this week, are going to be having our episode drop about Jack and Jill. Uh, so I'm very excited about that for the holidays. And also, also, this podcast, The Director's Wall, is now on Instagram. I started an Instagram account. So if, please follow us on Instagram under The Director's Wall. We'll be posting things about our new episodes. We will not bombard you with a million things but enough to make you know when we have a new thing come out. So please follow us. Or I would love to hear from anybody of what you think about this uh, or anything in the world. Cool. We are also on Twitter uh, at the director's wall and you can email, email us direct the director's wall at gmail.com. And uh, we will return still in Tulsa for Rumblefish. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house. Seas upon the moment long ago. One breath away and there you will be. So young and carefree again. That place in time so gold still.